Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Andrew Ross, who is author of Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing. We will discuss his book. Andrew Ross is Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University, a contributor to The Guardian, The New York Times, The Nation, and Al Jazeera. He is the author or editor of more than 25 books, including Bird on Fire, Lessons from the World's Least Sustainable City, Stone Men, The Palestinians Who Built Israel, The Celebration Chronicles, Life, Liberty, and Property Values in Disney's New Town. Welcome. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Let's start with something really basic. What do we mean in this instance when we talk about the failure of American housing? Ah, okay, Elena. That's a, that's a very good question. Not a simple one, however. Um, but um, I think most people are aware that we, we are in an affordable housing crisis. Uh, it's just, it's not just a national crisis, it's also a global crisis. And it existed before the pandemic, and, uh, it's gotten a lot worse as a result of the pandemic. I think a, a lot of people were surprised, even housing analysts were surprised to see housing prices soaring over the course of the pandemic and rents heading in the same direction. And with the eviction moratoriums now terminated, uh, there, there's a, a huge number of households uh, facing down eviction. So the crisis has become an emergency. And uh, how, how do we define um, that crisis? Well, you know, federal government has a ratio, statistical ratio for determining uh, what is affordable and what is not in terms of housing. And, uh, uh, you know, the most commonly used ratio is that people who are spending more than 30% of their household income on housing are, are officially rent burdened. And, uh, uh, if you're spending more than 50%, then you're, you're heavily cost burdened. But, uh, according to Zillow recently, which some, some of your listeners might consider to be a housing authority. Um, the average American renter now is uh, considered cost burden. So that didn't used to be the case. I mean, low-income households have always had trouble finding affordable housing, but in the last decade and a half or so, um, that insecurity has marched well up into the middle class and, and is now affecting, you know, half of the population. So I think that's, um, that's what I mean by the failure of American housing. Uh, in other words, a failure of the, the housing industry to provide or deliver housing that is actually affordable. Share a conflict of interest statement with us, if you would. Oh, okay. Well, um, I don't think I have any conflicts of interest. Uh, my sources are funding a research funds from New York University where I'm uh, an employed professor. So the research that I did for my book or uh, drew upon those funds. 
So New York University specifically funded research in the central Florida? Oh, they'll, they'll fund research wherever we do it. That's part of our job. <laughs> um, as long as it's legitimate research and it's, and it's ethically conducted. Where do housing, I don't know what the, what the correct terms are here, the various shelter, I'm going to use as an alternative term, the various shelter options, where do they fall in this conversation that we're having? So the people who are living in their cars, the people who have sold their homes because they want to travel and are living in a recreational vehicle, or the people who are living in vans, or in, as many of the ones that you interviewed in the book, who are living in on private property in a wooded forest or in a motel. How do you define these different categories, subcategories, and where do they fall under this umbrella of affordable housing that we're discussing? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, some of that uh, depends on how people define their own situation, in my mind. Uh, for example, a lot of the households that I found living in dilapidated budget motels in central Florida, which was the site of my research. Um, a lot of these people might define themselves as homeless and, and others would not because of the stigma that's attached to homelessness. Um, also, the federal government has its own definitions, which are often across purposes with each other. So I, I pretty much go with, with how people perceive themselves, in a sense. Um, and, uh, and, and again, most people who thought of themselves as homeless would call themselves homeless as opposed to unhoused, which is, uh, a preferred term, at least, you know, among, um, among academics these days. Uh, but I'm an ethnographer, so I go with what people call themselves. Um, and so, yeah, some, the spectrum of, uh, folks that I was interviewing and, and visiting and, staying in their domiciles with uh, range across a lot of the categories you mentioned. Um, populations living in motels, which is a huge population nationwide and not terribly visible. Motels have become a, a default housing option for folks who are uh, shut out of uh, uh, the homeowner and rental markets. Um yeah, people living in the streets and people living in tent encampments and in the woods, which is an even more invisible population. Um, I think we, we become very familiar with images of tent encampments in urban centers, um, especially in places like Skid Row in Los Angeles, uh, under freeways in Miami, and so on and so forth. Um, but the less visible populations are living in the woods, and you can find them really off off suburban strips all across the country if you know where to look for them. So there's quite a big spectrum, um, and I, I try to uh, I try to cover as much of that spectrum as possible uh, in my field site, which was a you know a a, a, a poor. Uh, working class county in central Florida 
the kind of place that doesn't get a lot of attention when <coughs> commentators write stories about the housing crisis. It's possible that some of these categories or all of these categories might fall under the affordable housing umbrella we're discussing at various times. Did I understand correctly? Well, they would be people who, yes, who, who are not able to afford uh, market rate housing. Um, but in addition, there, there are many people who are in market rentals or even in owner-occupied housing uh, who are rent burdened, who really can't afford uh, to stay in those places uh, because officially, as I said, they're spending more than 30% of their income on housing, and so that's considered unaffordable. They can they can stay in their houses as long as they can, you know, um, figure out how to make ends meet and pay their monthly bills, but uh, it's not a sustainable or affordable option for them in the long run. So there are some people who, for whatever life choices they've made, or circumstances, or by choice. In some cases, people have chosen to give up their homes because they want to travel, because they want a different lifestyle. How, or in some cases, natural disasters. I think you talked in the book about many people who had to be relocated after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, right? Yes. So there's no universal agreement on what the term affordable housing is, or even unhoused or homeless, is, I think is what I'm hearing you say. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say so. But, you know, people have their own definitions. And, and as I said, you know, I, I tend to go with how people define themselves. For example, in the motels where I, um, where I lived when I was doing this research, uh, I find a very broad cross-selection of, uh, of the community. There were families who had suffered foreclosure and been evicted from their homes, and they were in transition. They maybe thought they were going there for, you know, a couple of months or a year at the most, but they end up spending many years in a single room in those motels. Um, there were a lot of employed um employed tourist industry workers, because in Central Florida, the tourism and hospitality industry is the largest employer. And so they were, you know, working poor, but they couldn't afford an apartment. Um, there were economic fugitives from the north, uh, you know, seeking a lower costs, but still not able to afford an apartment. Elderly and retired people trying to subsist on a government check. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of climate refugees from the Caribbean and, uh, and also people involved in the informal economy, uh, who involved in the drug economy or the prostitution economy who, uh, for whom the motels are a, are a workplace basically. Um, these are the main categories of folks that I, I found there. There were a few people who were living there out of choice. Um, who could afford to live in apartments. They're few and far between, but for one reason or another, um, they decided that they, 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 they wanted they wanted to live in a single room in a motel like that. 
Um, so all kinds of people um, and a very vibrant community, um, but living under conditions largely not of their choosing. The book is titled Sunbelt, but if I understood correctly or from what I read, it's really centered on Osceola County just south of Orlando, right? That's right. Um, I chose uh, I chose Osceola for several reasons. Um, firstly, I'm, I'm familiar with the region. I, I wrote a book previously about the town of Celebration in Osceola County, which is a town that the Disney Company built that was more than 20 years ago uh, that I wrote that book. And, and my return to Celebration was really my point of entry for this book. Um, Osceola is also it was a good choice for me because, as I said, media commentators tend to focus on urban centers. I mean, that's where most journalists live, and, and I'm not suggesting they're lazy, but they tend to be on short deadlines, so they tend to cover their own backyards. And um, so we know how unaffordable big cities like uh you know, New York or L.A. or San Francisco are as a result. But in many ways, the challenges are much greater if you go beyond the urban fringe. And and those are the areas where poverty levels have been rising most sharply over the last 15 or 20 years or so. So I wanted to focus on one of those areas. And Osceola County happens to be the uh, the poorest of the counties in central Florida it's one of the fastest growing counties in the U.S. And demographically, it has a majority Hispanic population, uh, largely Puerto Rican. And um, most of the most of the employees who live there, as I said, are, are, are working in the tourism industry. So it's a it's, it's a low wage workforce for the most part. Um, so although, although most of the book is reporting from that site. Uh, I argue that uh, the conditions in my findings are also relevant to uh, Sunbelt regions in other parts of the U.S. where there's a similar kind of mix of uh, conditions and circumstances. A lot of housing speculation, um, low taxation, uh, developer-friendly elected officials, and, um, and fast growth. These are some of the features of Sunbelt economies. Osceola County has, if I, my findings online were accurate, about 390,000 residents, official numbers in any case. And according to your book, about 1,500 people arrive there every week, so about 78,000 a year. What percentage? Um, is that right? Well, that's the region as a whole. But in the county? Yeah. Uh, Central Florida, which is composed of several counties, um, but um, but Osceola is the fastest growing. Okay, so the seventy eight thousand a year are, is not specific to Osceola, is, is, is what I'm hearing. The, the clarification. Right, but uh, a, a large number of those will end up in Osceola County. What percentage of the population in Osceola County would you estimate? is homeless by their definition or yours or however you want to describe it? Uh, that's more difficult to say. 
Um, homeless people are uh, chronically undercounted on a national basis. The federal government bases its data on a single count undertaken on one night in January across the country where volunteers go out and try and count the number of homeless people. And uh, it's a kind of ludicrous exercise that everyone involved recognizes is ludicrous, but they have to go through the motions in order to uh, record this data uh, for, um, for federal appropriation purposes. So the, the numbers are very, very soft, <laughs> and uh, there's, there's really very little data. The, the, most accurate, um, uh, the most accurate ratios come for actually from school boards, um, school boards across the country, which, which do surveys and ask uh, students if they have a permanent abode to stay in. But even these are not very accurate, but they're, they're about the best we can get. Now, you spent time between 2016 and 2020, so over a four-year period. You spent an amount of time there speaking with businesses and organizations, government entities, and self-described homeless people. What was your impression? What percentage of the population in the county or in the central Florida region would you say is homeless? Um, you know, I never really, I never really thought about that. Uh, it's, uh, Osceola is considered by most folks who live in the region to have a home, quote, homeless, unquote, problem. And, um, and the, the visible and invisible populations are, are not difficult to find. So I wasn't particularly interested in numbers per se. Um, I was, uh, my work is, is mostly qualitative rather than quantitative. So I wanted to report, um, uh, from, from, uh, as, at, at the ground level, as it were, report directly on the experience of people living in these conditions. So I, I wasn't doing a survey and, and estimating numbers, in other words. Let's talk a little bit more about the county itself, is you paint a picture in the book that's very compelling, a county that is divided in many ways, uh, haves and have-nots, uh, very development-friendly. Uh, I'll, I'll let you paint a picture. Uh, well, uh, yes, there are, um, there, there are vast disparities in, in income and wealth. Um, a lot of that has to do with the tourism and hospitality industry. Uh, Osceola County, among other things, uh, brands itself as the vacation home capital of the world. And what that means is that it's the highest, um, the highest concentration of vacation home rentals. And those are just to the south of Disney World. That's the reason why they're there. Um, and Osceola County, uh, is very friendly towards uh, the vacation home industry. In other words, the short-term rental industry. Not every jurisdiction is. In fact, Orange County, just to the north, which is where Orlando is situated, makes it very difficult for uh, short-term rental operators to be in business there. Um, it's a very controversial uh, business sector. 
But what that means is that um, uh, fairly well-heeled families who are coming to visit the area, and especially Disney World, are um, are renting for several days in often quite lavish and opulent vacation homes at the western end of the county. And on any given night, many of these homes, as you can imagine, are vacant. While there are, at the other end of the county, there are many people living in the woods under trees. Um, This is a phenomenon which is familiar to us in New York, where I live, where there are many uh, luxury towers that are luxury apartment towers that have been built over the last 10 years or so and are pretty much vacant because overseas investors like to park their capital in New York real estate at the same time as our homeless shelters are overflowing. Likewise in Miami. I think Miami and New York and Central Florida, the three, uh, the three sites where these overseas investors like to park their capital. So these are some of the, the big disparities. Um, and then there's also the town of celebration itself, which uh, is a chapter in my book, um, which which hosts a different kind of story about um, about wealth. I can talk about that if you want. Um, if we so, could hold yeah. off on the celebration discussion for a little bit, because that is, as you said, a particular discussion or very specific to celebration, right? What is the main source or sources of revenue for Osceola County? Um, good question. Uh, in in Fl- Florida is one of the states that uh, where there's no income tax, and it's generally a low tax state. And so uh, municipalities, local jurisdictions have to raise uh, the funds for their budgets, mostly from property taxes. And so that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, there's there's such an emphasis on, on real estate growth and real estate development and why elected officials are so developer friendly. Uh, that's the main source of uh, funding for the most part. How does this situation in, in Osceola County compare with other parts of the country that have serious homeless issues? New York, as you mentioned, Miami, uh, but also on the West Coast. Uh, I think perhaps the best known city in terms of homeless issues right now is Los Angeles. San Francisco is by some points of view has the worst problem in the entire country, Seattle. How do these cities or regions compare? How are they similar? How are they different? Um, I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of commonalities. I mean the the, the, the basic the basic problem is that people are homeless in a locality where they can't afford housing, where there's an income shortage and uh, where whatever income they can generate is, is, is simply not adequate. And so for sure, there are, you know, fairly well-known urban centers like the ones you mentioned where house, housing prices have soared and it's almost impossible for uh 
you know, working populations, working class populations to afford housing. Um, but in addition, and I think this is this is just as probably more relevant to uh, the area that I'm looking at. Um, anywhere in the country that is basically a destination, that is uh, where tourism is is a major industry, or where visitors like to go. Um, is going to have the same kinds of problems because tourism and hospitality industry, which is actually the fifth largest industry in the country, uh, has a very low wage uh, workforce. And, um, and, and the business model is one in which fairly wealthy people are certainly more wealthy than the service workers are coming in and they're being serviced by this low wage workforce. And the price of the properties that they are renting contribute to rising rents and, and, and rising property values in, in that region or that area. And so you have this gap that opens up between, uh, between the price of housing and, and what people can afford who are actually employed in the industry. So pretty much anywhere in the country that, that, that meets that profile, uh, as a destination, it, it is going to have um, a lot of homeless or unhoused people. And um, in the course of, uh, you know, doing um, uh, radio interviews for this book that was published quite recently, uh, I get approached by a lot of radio stations in locations like that, um, that... Um, the the sort of fit that profile. San Francisco, as described by Michael Schellenberger, who is author also of a recently published book called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, talks about some of the issues that you raise in the book, but his perspective is that many of the policies instituted by Progressive governments, well-meaning advocates, nonprofit organizations that cater to the homeless, that they are creating a situation that has aggravated, significantly aggravated, the homeless situation and that it's causing a problem from, for example, the tourism perspective in a city like San Francisco that is perhaps one of the most attractive tourism cities or cities from a tourism perspective because of the policies that they have instituted there are now feces on I forget somebody did a count 146 blocks of the city streets of the city have been found copious quantities I don't know how you do a feces census and uh, syringes and that this is now driving the tourists away so it's having the opposite effect and that all of the monies that they've been collecting are not working what do you think is similar or different with the situation in central florida that you explored um well i'm, I'm not familiar with that book uh, but I, I get a sense of the argument from the, the way you paraphrased it. Um, I, I don't think it really matters at this point what, what kind of government is in uh, administration currently, whether they're, you know, 
progressive or, or uh, conservative-leaning governments. Uh, the economic factors are the most important ones. And while there are a lot of reasons that you could cite for the lack of affordable housing, and there are a lot of solutions out there that people talk about, uh, the the basic problem when it boils down to it is that people simply don't have enough income to afford housing. I mean, that's the reason why they become homeless or they lose their job, which is the same thing, which amounts to the same thing. And in some of those cities like San Francisco or the West Coast cities, which um, there's a kind of a perception in the public mind that homeless people gravitate towards uh, warm weather locations. <clears throat> like Florida or, or, or the West Coast, California. Um, but the actual research or data shows quite something quite different, which is that people tend to become homeless um, in locations where they have lost their housing. So they tend not to travel far. For homeless people, it's a logistics problem to travel far, especially if they're carrying their stuff with them. And so uh, that tends to be the main reason why people uh, are be- becoming unhoused in those locations that you mentioned. They've either lost their housing, they've lost their jobs, or they simply don't have the income to keep up with these soaring prices. And um, Osceola County doesn't have a particularly progressive governance uh, model. Uh, Florida is pretty much a red state. Um, certainly from the point of view of the state legislature. So we don't necessarily think of that as progressive governance. So I'm not sure that it makes a whole lot of difference. Um, It does sound as if this author had a particular political bias uh, and intention in writing that book. It does seem that way from the title, but as I recall, I think he describes himself as a left-leaning individual and someone who is living and working there, one of the things that he draws attention to is that the policies that have been put in place in San Francisco that give stipends to the homeless, that provide access to and assistance with the use of drugs in public facilities such as libraries, that all of these policies have attracted, have, have served the purpose of a magnet to the city of people with these issues, with these tendencies from across the country. And that so many of the people who are living in San Francisco and benefiting from these programs are not from the area. And in some ways that sounds similar to what you're describing is happening in Central Florida, that many people are coming to the area in this case, not in search of the policies that assist them, but in search of work or warm weather. Why are Who are these 1,500 people who are coming to Central Florida every week? Do you have any insights on that? Um, well, they've been arriving for several decades. It's not, it's not a particularly new uh, phenomenon. I mean, Florida is a fast-growth fast state, has been for quite some time. In Central Florida is a region um, that certainly meets that profile. Um, with respect to 
you know, your 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 question about this author's um, arguments um, within the housing. I think is I think what's perhaps relevant here is that in in the homelessness uh, services sector, the 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 current paradigm, the prevailing paradigm, is something called housing first. It used to be house, it used to be treatment first, and now it's housing first. And the difference between these two approaches is that uh, homeless service providers used to treat homeless people as if they were as if they were broken, and they needed to be repaired and healed before they were put into permanent housing. And uh, research and practice showed that uh, what's much more effective is a housing first approach which is to say that you could unhouse people in permanent housing and then you provide services and they're much more likely to be able to stay in that housing and sustain themselves than under the previous approach. The only problem with this is that housing first has become, you know, the dominant approach at a time when there's so little housing available to move people into. And so while the, the approach works in practice and in theory, it's, uh, it, it's, very, it's very difficult to find housing units to move people into. They're so few and far between, and they're so costly at this point in time. So it's kind of ironic and a little bit tragic that, um, uh, that that option is not available for, you know, for a homeless services industry. It's also much more cost-effective to use that approach. This housing crisis that we're talking about, it seems to be widespread in the state of Florida, and as you mentioned earlier, beyond worldwide. Many people within the state of Florida are being displaced by new arrivals from other states, New York, California, you name it that are coming in with cash in many cases and buying sight unseen, especially during the pandemic. How, if at all, do you see differences within the state? So we've compared different parts of the country and their policies and the reasons that people go there, etc. Have you looked at, for example, the differences between South Florida and Central Florida and the West Coast of Florida, which all have their own idiosyncrasies, and if so, what can you tell us? Yeah, there, there, are, some, there are some regional differences. You know, location matters a lot when you talk about housing. Housing is very local. Housing markets are very local. That said, the three, you know, the three locations you mentioned are heavily visited. They're destination locations. Uh, they're also very eligible locations for, uh, you know, people with more money who are coming to relocate for whatever reason. So there's a lot of commonality between them, I think. Um, that said, uh, we still have to, you know, morally, ethically, politically, economically, we still have to face the challenge of uh, being able to provide affordable housing for anyone who lives in those areas. I mean, this is, this is a challenge that has to be faced. And where the failure of American housing 
uh, the subtitle of my book comes in, is that the delivery model for affordable housing over the last several decades or so has failed miserably. And that delivery model is for uh, government officials to leave everything up to the private market to deliver affordable housing by uh, offering a series of subsidies and offering more sugar for developers to get into the game. And while on the face of it, this would seem to be a fairly reasonable formula, it has simply not worked. And uh, that delivery model is failing miserably to provide affordable housing. So there doesn't seem any much, there doesn't seem much point in repeating the failure. We have to look to alternatives, uh, which in my view, at least based on my research, are non-market alternatives. And there's a range of those out there um, that are being discussed and uh, partially implemented in, in certain places across the U.S. That's, um, that's our best measure of success going forward, is if we have a critical mass of non-market alternatives in housing and, um, and that we turn our back on this, uh, this failed model. There's a lot of talk about people leaving the country well-educated professionals, a lot of young professionals, a lot of college graduates, a lot of retirees who are suffering through these issues, among others. Do you think that there is a brain drain from the U.S. abroad? Are these cities in the Sun Belt and beyond, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, are all of these a canary in the coal mine sort of alarm? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, personally, I, I didn't come across a lot of evidence of that, but I wasn't really looking at that. I was more focused on the incoming, um, rather than those people who might be relocating overseas. Uh, it's, it's, um, I mean, during the pandemic, there were, you know, population shifts, but they were mostly in country. Uh, from one city to another for the most part. Uh, and the, the, there certainly was a shift of folks from the north towards Florida, but uh, I think a little less than, than, than was written about in the press. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I haven't really, haven't really kept track of, of what you're referring to, um, the brain drain. Um, I, I'm more focused on uh, incoming capital and incoming investment. Uh, which is sunk into these regions and, um, and the footprint of that incoming capital generates a lot of, uh, inequality and disparities. And you talked about that in the book in relation to, of course, these luxury rental homes, but those were mostly owned by individual owners or small businesses, right? That, that's correct. Um, uh, mostly uh out of town uh far away investors we have uh we are, we have a big problem in in the housing market with uh corporate investment right now um 
one in six houses purchased in the U.S. last year, and in some markets as many as one in four, were bought by large corporate investors. And uh, this is uh, this is one of the reasons for the soaring prices, for sure, over the last decade or so. But but the people who invest in um, in the private equity firms that are a large part of that corporate investment. Um, a lot of the individuals who invest in those firms are the same kinds of individual investors who who purchased uh, vacation rental homes in Central Florida. So it's basically the same investor class, even though um, uh, the type of investor is different. And then there are complicated issues, certainly in the Osceola area. Tell us a little bit about that very large project that may in the future become a half the city of half a million? Oh, yes. That's a whole chapter in my book, um, which I, I sort of stumbled upon. Uh, the Mormon Church, which happens to be the largest landowner in Florida, a lot of people would not know that, owns a huge amount of land in the eastern part of central Florida. And... Um, had decided to develop that land. Most of it is on very environmentally fragile land uh, with wildlife corridors that are crucial to the movement of wildlife in the state of Florida as a whole. Um, they've sought approval for the development of a whole new city of half a million people uh, in the decades to come on those lands. So this chapter of my book looked at... Uh, some of the conflicts that have developed over um, those plans, especially involving environmentalists, and ultimately the impact of that uh, new city's plans on the prospects for affordable housing in the region. And there seems to be a very high probability that this will come to pass, if I understood correctly? The, the plans were approved. Um, Osceola County revised its uh, comprehensive planning documents to uh, to authorize the development. I mean, they, they did so in a way which uh, which I found really undercut a lot of their own uh, blueprints for developing affordable housing in the county. Um, but uh, so this is an example of uh, you know developer friendly officials bending towards large developers' needs and aspirations. Um, the environmentalists in the region have, have fought back and are trying to um, uh, preserve or conserve as much land as they can. And it's an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing battle, which I try to uh, describe in the book. And it seems that even within the conservationists, there might be some who are more development-inclined than others. Oh, always. Um, yes, the uh, large developers have learned over the years that if they can find um, if they can find a friendly environmentalist uh, who has some kind of authority in the field, um, you know, to to legitimize their plans, then uh, that kind of environmentalist is sought after, and, and indeed they they find such a person in central Florida. Let's go 
back to basics for a second. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the right to housing. You say that everyone has a right to housing. Where does that idea come from, and who is going to pay for it? Well, there there are many people who consider uh, the right to housing as a basic human right. I mean, it is in uh, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and it is recognized in certain countries. The U.S. at certain points in, in history have come close officially to to acknowledging it, but never actually accepting or recognizing the right to housing. FDR came pretty close. Uh, the Housing Act in 1949 and the Truman administration uh, did go pretty far along the road to, to recognizing the right of, of citizens to adequate housing. Um, but it's, it's increasingly, um, uh, among, among housing advocates and, and urbanists and, uh, ethically minded parts of the population, I think increasingly the right to housing is, is being recognized and acknowledged. Um, the, for reasons that are pretty obvious, I mean, we, we do have a housing crisis on our hands and, and we have large numbers of people, you know, living in inadequate and, and substandard shelter and on the streets. So, um, which jurisdictions, which authorities, which governmental entities are going to recognize the right to housing? That's a very pressing question. Well, it seems that many people are in agreement, at least in theory, with this concept, as you were saying. Floridians have agreed that there should be set-asides to make housing affordable for the middle and lower classes. $2 billion, I think, was the last figure that I saw of state funding for that purpose have been taken away by the politicians. Is there any kind of government entity, federal or otherwise, that has oversight over these funds, over the housing issues, over the sale, the trading, the commodity that housing has become? Yes, another good question. Uh, Florida is one of the 27 states in the country that uh, whose state legislature has passed preemptive legislation. Uh, which basically makes it very, very difficult to build affordable housing. They, these, that, those laws prohibit rent controls and prohibit, uh, uh, planning tools like inclusionary housing, zoning, and others that, uh, the local planners could use. Uh, that, that state level legislation makes it very difficult for, uh, local jurisdictions. Um, in planners and elected officials in these jurisdictions who might want to be doing the right thing but are barred from doing so by that state-level legislation. Uh, so that's one of the things that makes things particularly difficult. In I think in situations like this where we're faced with a housing crisis of this scale and dimension, we look to the federal government for comprehensive solutions. And the, and the federal government should be in the business of providing those solutions. Right now, however, tragically, there's a lot of gridlock, as we know, on Capitol Hill. And even though there's, you know, there, there, there is a will 
to move forward in these issues. It's it's very very difficult politically to get traction and and get agreement and comprehensive policies from the federal government, which might you know conceivably be powerful enough to override some of those uh, uh, state level uh, laws and initiatives. Many people are concerned, including minorities, many of which have been voting increasingly conservative, that they are being taxed to pay for all of these giveaways, in quotation marks. How how is that reflected in reality? Because one of the things that you said a few minutes ago was that the source of income for Osceola County is property taxes. So then it's true to some extent that property owners are bearing some of the burden, most of the burden, for any programs that assist with homelessness, with drug addiction, with mental health. What can you tell us about that? Well, if we're if we're looking at the problem from a cost-effective uh, perspective, uh, which which I think is is very valid, um, I think there's a number of things I could say. Um, one is that uh, the, the you know the the cost of subsidizing a low-wage workforce from a government perspective is considerable. When employers pay rock-bottom wages. Then for sure, uh, government has to step in and offer all sorts of services, which can sometimes be costly. So that is essentially a subsidy to the employer. Uh, in addition, uh, if you look, um, if you look overall at, uh, uh, housing policy in the post-war period for the last 60 or 70 years or so, um, the level of subsidy to private sector housing far outweighs any kind of subsidy that is being uh, accorded to uh, public housing initiatives or even affordable housing initiatives. Uh, those subsidies to uh, private sector housing come in all sorts of forms, um, but uh, they they are uh, they're often um, neglected or ignored. In those kinds of analyses, people uh, people people are encouraged to think of themselves as taxpayers who are being, you know, landed with the bill for public housing or affordable housing initiatives, but they they don't they don't see all of the uh, the other subsidies that that come the way of developers in the form of uh, gas, cheap gas, um, roads and transportation uh, budgets. Um, mortgage, um, mortgage interest deductions, and so on and so forth. There's a whole raft of, of subsidies to the private sector that that they really they don't get counted in those kinds of perceptions. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, the public, all of us, are shouldering the burden for all of these special subsidies that large companies such as Disney and developers and landowners are getting in return. They're getting cheap labor and it's costing everybody else as a result. Yes. No, I, I, th- I think I think you put that much better than I did. <laughs> um, 
that's that's basically what I was saying. But uh, the the you know the prevailing perception is um, is it is that we you know we're we're being asked to fund uh, services to homeless. We're being asked to fund public housing. There's a lot of talk about renewing public housing programs and so on and so forth, uh, rather than what you mentioned. What what do you say to the argument that people say the homeless have it coming to them, that they're not taking responsibility for their own life choices, that they're not taking responsibility for their addiction, that they need some tough love or not love at all, that they need some strict policies, that it's not society's responsibility to look after the children of families that don't do family planning, and the list of concerns go on and on, less so about mental health, of course, because that's harder to predict or control. What would you say to those arguments? Well, I think they're very cruel and heartless uh, perceptions, and um, and they're also based on, on a lot of misconceptions. Um, I think a lot of folks believe that uh, if you have uh, mental health challenges or addictions, that those are the kinds of circumstances that drive people into homelessness. Uh, the reality is quite the opposite, that the experience of being homeless uh, generates a lot of these challenges and addictions and, 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 and mental health uh, problems. Um, and um, so, that, I mean, that's that's part of the problem. Uh, the the other part of it really has to do with uh, you know personal ethics, um, how we can you know how we can walk our streets and and walk past so many homeless people and and tolerate a kind of society which tolerates those levels of homelessness. I think for a lot of people uh, who 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 are not very outspoken, are not as outspoken as the cruel and heartless people. Parts of the population um, tend to be less vocal, and perhaps uh, perhaps it's time we became more vocal. Where does the where does the solution lie? Because even those who are less cruel, as you say, those who are inclined to self-tax, as we're seeing in some venues, we're still seeing the prevalence of not in my backyard. Yes, we want to help the homeless, but we don't want a shelter. We don't want a facility. We don't want to see drug addicts using drugs in our libraries or on the streets and relieving themselves in public streets and the the list of complaints goes on and on and then you have the advocates that say yes in my backyard you have to do something increase the density tax the property owners where do we find the solution because clearly the situation is as you said reached an emergency status well i think uh i mean my research showed that um as far as you know, housing delivery goes, we need, we really need to start generating a, a host of non-market alternatives. 
for housing, and they are out there, and they're and they're very popular ideas. Uh, it's difficult to get traction with with elected officials on them, but they they would include what's what's called social housing, which is a term that's more current in Europe than in the U.S., but increasingly current here. Social housing is a range of uh, of ownership options that aren't tied to the marketplace and that uh, are things like community land trusts where the the land is, is owned by a trust and there are caps on uh, the value that houses can be sold for so that there's some guarantee in the long term of those houses remaining affordable. Uh, there's a range of options like that that are feasible in addition, of course, to public housing, I mentioned there's a lot of interest in restarting public housing programs, both in Capitol Hill and also in certain cities. Uh, we need to be pushing in that direction, in my view. And until we have a critical mass of uh, non-market alternatives that aren't subject to speculation and don't result in soaring prices, um, until we get to that point, I, 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 I see prices continuing to spiral. And we're going to see the generation of even more homeless people over the next few years, a few decades. How does a model like the one in Australia work at a, a situation where most people rent and home ownership does not necessarily result in a good investment? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that, um, with that particular analysis. I mean, there are obviously cities in Australia which have, uh, also have unaffordable housing prices, but, uh, in a lot of large cities, there are a majority of renters for sure. I mean, New York City where I live, that is the case and always has been the case. Um, whether it's a, a result of choice is, uh, is is more difficult to say. I mean, some people rent because they want to be mobile, but most people, I think, rent because they, they really can't afford uh, home ownership. And what we've seen over the last decade or so is a decline in home ownership in the U.S. nationally and a rise in rentership. Uh, a generation or two really being sort of locked out of uh, of the home ownership market for one reason or another. You know, their incomes are just not keeping up with the, the price of housing. Student loans is another big factor. If you're burdened with student loans, it's very difficult to, to get in at the entry level on the housing market. I don't think... Um, I don't think analysts really see that rise in rentership faltering in any way and continuing to uh, to increase over the next decade or so, and, and largely because, in addition, because of the because of the penetration of the housing market by the large corporate investors, they tend to buy uh, single-family homes and turn them into rental housing and jack up the rents. That's their business model. Yes, I think you even said that now some of the very large companies are turning to 
the purchase of mobile home parks as a source of uh, rentals. Is that right? Yes, uh, all kinds of real estate classes, uh, but the mobile home parks are particularly interesting. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Florida, and I stayed for several days in a mobile home park in Pinellas County, just west of Tampa, and I found that mobile homes in that park were uh, selling at prices um, that were close to or above the prices that they were purchased for 20 or 25 years before. And that is kind of staggering because, uh, you know, mobile homes uh, are, are an asset that's supposed to depreciate over time. I mean, that's that's a sort of norm or consensus. But that seems to be no longer the case now, that they're appreciating in value, which is, which is just mind-boggling. Most people, as you said earlier, think of homeless issues being an urban issue. And one of the things you've done in the book is demonstrated that's not the case at all. Yes. Uh, I, I learned quite a lot um, from visiting the encampments in the woods. I found that a lot of them were pretty well organized. They had self-elected leaders and rules and you know, the leaders ran, ran a tight ship. Uh, some of them were organized according to consumption choices, you know, beer camps, meth camps, heroin camps. Um, there were a majority, I would say, of folks who were employed, some of them full-time, but most of them casually employed or involved in the informal economy in one way or another. Um and, uh, and also, in addition to the encampments, there are people that prefer their privacy, so they're, they're sort of living at a distance from the camps. Um, but while, um, you know, while I don't think m- most people are not there out of choice, and so their conditions not of their choosing, they, um, they have a kind of society or communities that are based on mutual aid which in many ways are quite admirable. There's a lot of sharing of resources, a lot of sharing of information, sharing of knowledge about this, that, or the other, and uh, and obviously a sharing of companionship. I don't mean to romanticize the communities, but at best uh, they've provided models of living that uh, that, that others um, like ourselves might, might learn from. Of course, there are also predatory acts, you know, robbery, uh, assault and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, I, I was surprised to find that level of self-organization um, in, in a lot of the tent encampments in the woods. You, One of the things that you mentioned in the book was that there were virtually no Hispanics in the wood residents. Uh, perhaps, if I understood correctly, it was because they were afraid of violence that they would be attacked? Yeah, for the most part, the, the people I found living out there were, you know, predominantly white. Uh, They're from rural backgrounds, um, so living outdoors is within their comfort zone. Some of them have been there for decades, um, and, uh, and minorities tended, if they were homeless, tended to be in the urban, urban locations. Uh, you know, like Orlando or Kissimmee, which is the, the biggest town in, in Osceola County. And uh, as you say, yes, uh, what I found was that there, there, there is a fear of assault. 
um, uh, on the part of those populations. Um, and the women who I found living in the woods, a lot of them had been victims of domestic abuse, so they tended to attach themselves fairly quickly to men uh, for protection. What percentage of that population would you say was women? Def- definitely a minority, but uh, but a significant minority, I would say. What about age? Um, really, all ages, and uh, you know, across this whole spectrum of of different populations that are that are living out there, all ages really. If you if you um, if you've been living in a motel because you can't afford an apartment rental and you get evicted from the motel, there's a very good chance that your your next neighbors are, are likely to be in the woods along with the alligators and possums. So what differences did you observe between the motel residents and the tent in the wood residents? Not a whole lot. Um, I mean, the difference would really be largely in income. If you're if you're in a motel, you're able to afford, uh, you know, the the rates which the la- which the landlords, I mean, their owners, I call them uh, reluctant landlords because they didn't get into that business to be long term, um, you know, have long term occupants. The owners set the rates just below the market rates for apartments. And the reason why a lot of folks in the motels are there is because they simply can't afford first and last month's rent, which you need for apartments. They don't have that kind of cash flow or a lump sum to put up front. Then, So that's why they're in the motels, but they're not paying appreciably less than they would for market rate rental apartments. And uh, and if you can't make those rents, then, you know, you're you're not going to be able to stay there. So that's that's the reason why they would be evicted eventually. Do you think that this situation that you studied in central Florida, and as you said earlier, you think is wide wider than that, do you think that is a reflection of the whole state? So wooded areas across the state have resident homeless populations and motels across the state have resident homeless populations? Uh, they, te- they tend to go together um, because, uh, and I think this, this is the general rule, that the, the tent encampments in the woods are close to amenities. Um, so you find them just off suburban strips in most parts of the country, as they are in Osceola County, um, where you know, the occupants have access to uh, low-cost supermarkets, retail, and uh, and also, you know, places of employment on the Strip. That's where they tend to be. And, and the motels, likewise. Um, although there are a lot of motels that have been physically stranded over the years by, by new freeways. You know, they used to be on well-traveled routes. And no longer are, and so they they no longer function in the hospitality market. So they they've been, to all intents and purposes, they've become affordable permanent housing. 
But you won't find you won't find the tent encampments in any old woods in Florida. <laughs> that 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 doesn't make that doesn't make sense for the occupants. I found um, I found in my visits, you know, I, there were a lot of warnings that people gave me about going into the woods, um, but I found that people were quite receptive to me and quite courteous to me. Once I had explained who I was, they uh, they also have to protect themselves from unwanted visitors. And so most of the encampments have, you know, some form of protection, usually, guard, you know, guard dogs. Um, uh, sometimes they have trip wires. I heard all sorts of stories, but that's basically for self-protection. Well, and they were also receptive to you, uh, at least in part, because you were offering them meals as a way to connect with them, as an opportunity to chat with them. Is, is that right? Sometimes I would do that, yeah, to have a, you know, sit down in another location and do more of a, a, a do a kind of interview, an in-depth interview that was perhaps away from the camps. Uh, so sometimes, I, yes, I'd offer to take them to the nearest McDonald's and, and we'd have a meal there for sure. Let's talk about celebration a little bit. That is, I think, perhaps a big surprise for a lot of people, a lot of people who may have heard of celebration, who may have thought that that was a great place to live, a lot of people who like the concept of a, a town core of Tell us a little bit about how Celebration came about and what the underlying promise was and where that's gone. Yeah, well, Celebration was uh, was developed by the Disney Company in the 1990s, and uh, it was planned as a, a so-called new urbanist town, which is to say, you know, has a very uh, identifiable core, a downtown, a mixed-income community, uh, mixed use also downtown where you have, you know, apartments above stores the way it used to be in pre-war towns and, um, and a very pedestrian friendly and, uh, small lots and, uh, a range of housing which doesn't look like sort of cookie cutters, suburban subdivisions. All of these things that are characteristic of, uh, of the new urbanist movement in small town planning. And I lived there in, in the late 1990s and reported on, for a year, and reported on the experiences of the first residents there. I promised my, um, my, my neighbors I would return in 20 years to check in on them. So I was very dutifully doing that around about 2016 when I first returned and hadn't really intended to write another book. But one thing led to another, and the story I found in Celebration was that the town center, the entire town center, had been sold by the Disney Company to a Wall Street private equity firm. Very mysterious sale for that part, for that uh, fact. And, and in fact, this, uh, this firm had uh, very little experience in managing large properties like that. It's only three years old. And... Uh, Private equity firm did what private equity has done all across the country because these firms have entered communities and snapped up housing all across the country. They jacked up the rents. Uh, they sold off some of the assets. They um, 
they withdrew a lot of equity from refinancing, and they did a very poor job of maintaining the property, um, which meant there's a lot of distressed uh, condo apartments uh, downtown, which I found in celebration. Again, this is this is not unusual across the country. Uh, it's a familiar story to communities that have been um, penetrated by private equity firms. The difference in celebration was usually it doesn't happen in a high-end community. Celebration is quite an affluent place, and um, and usually our residents don't fight back, but they did in celebration. Some of the downtown condo residents. Uh, fought uh, a long legal battle with the Wall Street firm who reached a settlement recently and uh, that's the story that I follow in the book and it's a pretty graphic situation in terms of roofs leaking and the private equity firm ostensibly not really maintaining the property that they bought, but just using it to suck money out of their investment, if I understood correctly. Is that right? That's that's the basic business model, yeah, to drain, to drain as, many, as much resources as you can from the asset and then, um, and then sell it off in pieces or, or intact. What can we look for in the future? I'm, I'm hearing a lot of confirmation of the things that we know about and new things that we didn't know about, specifically the situation in Central Florida as a iceberg, if you will, just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. What do you think is going to happen in the next five or ten years across the country and in Florida? Well, there's no sign that these large corporate investors are are going to be leave, leaving the housing market anytime soon. In fact, they're, they've uh, extended their the range of purchases that they make. They've snapped up a lot of hospitals, um, student housing, commercial centers, and so on and so forth. Um, this really stems from uh, just after the last housing crash in 2008, 2009, 2010, when a fatal decision was made or a fateful decision was made by the Obama administration to sell a lot of the America's foreclosed homes to these private equity firms, you know, a, a bargain basement prices. And they snapped up a lot of these houses turned them into rentals, and everyone thought this was going to be a short-term financial play. Uh, the firms would sell the houses once the the market regained its value. Um, but it's turned out to be a long-term play, and um, it looks to be almost permanent. Um, so what are what are the consequences of that going to be again this isn't just a national situation it's also global blackstone for example which is the largest of these firms is now the largest land uh, landlord in the world and the impact of their investment um is displacing populations and making housing affordable all across the globe um how is the federal government responding to that? Because these kinds of activities are, are barely regulated at all. 
One example in a recent initiative rolled out by the Biden administration, which is promising to build 100,000 new affordable houses over the next three years, there's a promise in that uh, initiative that foreclosed homes will not be sold to corporate investors, but instead um, there'll be preference given to uh, to nonprofit or community developers in those sales. So um, what what can we take away from that? That the Biden administration is trying not to repeat the mistakes made by the Obama administration, of which Biden himself was a part, of course. Um, and it's a it's a step in the direction of what I call social housing. It's a baby step, but nonetheless. Um, a, a movement in that direction and a recognition at the federal level of, um, of, of why that's so important. Andrew Ross, thank you for joining us from New York. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And to our audience, you have been listening to Andrew Ross, who is author of Sunbelt Blues, The Failure of American Housing, who discussed his book. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com. 